uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the air in studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. It's good to have you with us for another thrill-packed, ever-exciting episode of Squirrel Chatter. We webcast the podcast every day from 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And then you can download the podcast wherever you find fine podcasts. And this is a podcast that's dedicated to scripture, history, current events, and whatever else it is that I want to talk about. It is Wednesday, or Tuesday. (laughs) What day is it? It's Tuesday. I can look at the top. Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. We are continuing in our study Bible level Bible study of Deuteronomy. And we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4 today. And I plan to get to verse 20. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. See how long-winded I get today. And we've also got a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, all sorts of stuff for us this morning. All right, well, let us begin, as is our practice, with a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. This is the prayer of confession. Mm. After a sip of coffee, drinking the last of the uh, last of the Waffle House coffee that I had on hand. Mm. Good stuff. All right. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. Now our reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Today's reading is entitled, God's Plan for Temptation. And the scripture verse is Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was laid up by the Spirit, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Dr. MacArthur writes, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness did not catch his father by surprise. The son was specifically led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The word translated tempted is from a morally neutral term that means to test. But sometimes, as here, the context clearly indicates that the testing was aimed at enticing one to do evil. That the devil was going to present certain temptations to Jesus thus justifies rendering the word tempted. It gives us the negative connotation of Satan's sinister intentions. God sometimes uses Satan's temptations toward evil 
as part of his larger plan to test believers for good. See the book of Job. Whereas the devil wanted to lead Christ into sin and disobedience in the wilderness, God used the circumstances to reconfirm Christ's holiness and worthiness. This is God's plan for all his saints. Cross-references James 1, 2-4 and 12-13. That Christ's righteousness be revealed in us. Joseph's severe mistreatment at the hands of his brothers in the Old Testament and his subsequent misfortunes in Egypt could have driven him to despair and sinful bitterness. But by faith he recognized God's sovereign hand in it all. Genesis 50 verse 20. Whether God tests us directly or uses Satan to challenge us, he will always use the situation to eventually produce good fruit in us. Ask yourself, what positive benefits does temptation serve in your own life? As unwanted and unwelcome as it is, what does its mere presence keep from before you, thereby thwarting the aspirations of the enemy? Pray that God would gain his desired objectives in you, even through times of testing. And now, our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Um, Moses is still reminding the Israelites of the history um, that has led them to this place and God's hand in that history. But he's starting to go from simply reciting the facts about the history He's moving more into his teaching role um, as he is preparing them to enter into the promised land and live as a godly nation, which was God's intention. Mm. I must have snored last night. I got a tickle in the back of my throat. So he's starting to, to now recite to them the law. And like I said, he's, you know, we've got the law listed back in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers um, spread throughout, really. Um, and so Deuteronomy restates a lot of the law, but it also reapplies it. Because if you go back and read Exodus and you read Leviticus, a lot of it has to do with Israel encamped in the wilderness, where they're going to set up their tents, what order they're going to march in, etc. So now Moses is going to be going back through the law and he's going to be not changing the law, but reapplying it to instead of a nomadic people wandering in the wilderness, he's going to be applying it to a settled people living in homes and cities in the land that God is giving them. So he's taking the same law and applying it to different circumstances. So we're going to see some of that. We're going to see there's still some, some history and rem remembrance of history, but he's now starting to apply that history and, and, and get into the actual statutes of the law. 
Moses begins in verse 1. So now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to do, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I am commanding you. Now, one thing about the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant made at Mount Sinai, the covenant under which Israel was to live in the land, the covenant of Mount Sinai was always conditional and temporal. What do I mean? It's conditional. If you do this, then God will bless you. If you don't do this, God will not bless you. Um, when we get to the, the end of the book of Deuteronomy, there's a whole section on blessings and cursings. If you keep the law, you get all these blessings. If you don't keep the law, you get all these curses. So the, the Mosaic Covenant has always been temporal and conditional. Temporal means it, it takes place in time. The Abrahamic Covenant, which is first stated in Genesis 12, is unconditional and eternal. It's God saying what he is going to do in and through Abraham and his descendants. And the Abrahamic covenant includes the sending of Jesus Christ. So his perfect life, his death on the cross, his, his you know, um, his death, burial, resurrection, all of that is included in the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional and eternal. But the, the so the, the the Abrahamic covenant is, you know, believe and live, which is the same as the new covenant, which Jesus inaugurates at his first coming. And the Mosaic Covenant, and this is something that most people miss. When you read Hebrews, where it talks about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and the New Covenant is the covenant that Christ established, which is unconditional and eternal. That covenant replaces the Mosaic Covenant it, and it says quite clearly, if you're reading Hebrews, it's talking about Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Zion is where the cross was. That's where Jerusalem was. That's where Jesus died and established the new covenant. Mount Sinai is where the law was given to Moses. So the old covenant that is replaced by the new covenant is the Mosaic covenant. Now, when we understand that, and we're now under the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. But many of the elements do carry over. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The only one that isn't is the Sabbath. And the Sabbath in the Decalogue, I firmly believe, is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Just as circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, 
that all of Abraham's descendants would be circumcised as a sign that they were in the covenant. You know, the males would be circumcised. The new covenant, um, or the, the Mosaic covenant, the sign of the Mosaic covenant was Sabbath keeping. And this is interesting. When you look at all of the condemnations among all of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zephaniah, Haggai, you know, read through all the prophets, the major and minor prophets. They contain many condemnations for the sins of foreign nations, nations other than Israel. Not one of them ever condemns those other nations for failing to keep the Sabbath. They are condemned for worshiping false gods. They are condemned for sexual immoralities. They are condemned for cruelty and lawlessness. They are condemned for all sorts of things. Not one of them is ever condemned for failure to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to Israel. Now, the Sabbath is a picture. The writer to the Hebrews makes it clear that the Sabbath was a picture of resting in the finished work of Christ. God rested in the finished work of creation on the seventh day. He created in six days and he rested from creation. His work was finished. It was a sign that, you know, well, he wasn't tired. He's God. But it was a sign that his work was finished. We represent, we rest. We who have come to Christ by faith rest in the finished work of Christ. That's what the Sabbath is a picture of. But the Sabbath regulations applied to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. They don't apply now, even to Israel. So, you know, it's okay. You know, of course, the, the Sabbath is, is Saturday. I don't believe it was ever changed to Sunday. I do believe the Lord's Day was established as the day of, of worship in the New Testament but it does not carry the same you shall not work type of, of uh, regulations. Um, in the early church, especially before the, the, before it was uh, legalized, when it was under persecution, Christians met on the Lord's Day, but they would meet early, early in the morning before work or late at night after work because they were mostly of the lower class, mostly of the working class. They had jobs they had to do, um, and they probably did not get the day off. <laughs> so they worshiped when they could. They didn't refuse to work. You know, we're told that, you know, they were told to, to you know, treat your master as you would the Lord. You know, work, work for your master as you would for the Lord. Um, that, that there was a requirement for hard work and being a good employee or a good servant or a good slave. And those requirements were there so that in, in many cases, the, the Christians worked on Sundays and it's never made a big deal of. Um, it really wasn't until after Constantine that Sundays were then taken off 
um, as the the Roman Empire moved from pagan to Christianity as the official religion. That's a whole different story. So, um, when we're looking at these commandments, we're looking at the Mosaic Covenant. This was the law for Israel. And it is conditional. If you keep the law, you will be blessed. If you violate the law, you will be cursed. And we see that here. He says, you know, I'm, I'm teaching you these covenant, or these these statutes and judgments, these rules, these these things to live by, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And then he says something: you shall not add to or take away from the word I'm commanding you. You'll you'll keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I'm commanding you. So he's saying, you know, don't add to them. Don't take away from them. This is not a smorgasbord. The ancient Israelites did not get to pick and choose. What? Now, one more thing before we go any further. I want to point out that I said that these, the law given at Mount Sinai was replaced by the new covenant at the cross. And that's clearly taught in Hebrews. But don't think that obedience to the law of God is no longer a thing. The, like I said, the, the New Testament repeatedly points us back to the law of Moses for moral guidance, for understanding God's standards of right and wrong. So, you know, honor your father and your mother was true under the Mosaic Covenant. It's still true today. Um, lo love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength was true under the Old Covenant. It's true under the New Covenant today. And I think one of the things that we can understand in, in Jesus when he said that, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself on this depends all the law and the prophets, that if you, if you love God and love your neighbor as you ought to, you will keep the law. And by that, what do I mean? If you love God, you're not going to worship false gods, and you're not going to worship God in ways that he has said not to. You will worship him the way he said you are to. You're not going to take his name in vain. You're going to be honoring of God at all times. So that's loving the Lord your God. Then loving your neighbor as yourself, looking at the second table of the law, you're looking at you're not going to steal their stuff. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to seduce their spouse. You're not going to, you know, kill them because the, that would all be unloving behavior. <laughs> so that's the, you know, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, you will be keeping nine of the Ten Commandments. And as I said, the, the Sabbath regulation really isn't the uh, um, isn't carried over. Um, so, verse 3. Your eyes have seen what Yahweh has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who walked after Baal Peor, Yahweh your God has destroyed them from among you. What is Baal Peor? Is this a place? Is this a 
you know, okay, well, Baal, or Baal, as it's pronounced by many, apparently the ancient Semitic la uh, languages didn't use diphthongs. So two letters together, you pronounce both letter. I have been told, I am not an expert in ancient Semitic languages, but I am told it's Baal and not Baal. Um, but Baal works perfectly fine. We all know what it was. That's the way I grew up saying it. I've, I've kind of gotten out of that habit. So you'll hear me say Baal. But uh, Baal is a is a ancient Canaanite word meaning Lord. Um, so it's, it's like a title. And in many places in the Old Testament, it talks about worshiping the Baals, the Lords. It's plural. And the reason is that in the beginning, the Baals were local deities. So you had, you know, Baals of different places. And here we have Baal Peor. So this is a specific one of these pagan gods. Now, later, they kind of conglomerated into Baal, and that was the, the you know, then you, you, you no longer have people worshiping the Baals. You have people worshiping Baal. It's like they all got mixed together in a blender and became this one Baal. Um, but this is a particular Baal, Baal Peor. And this is an event that took place back in Numbers 25, um, verses 1 through 9. I'm just going to read through it. And Israel remained at Shittim, and the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. So we're seeing sexual immorality as the young ladies of Moab were seducing the young Israelite men. Um, this is a favorite tactic of Satan's. Why do you think pornography exists? Satan is more than happy to use the lusts of young people to lead them away from God. And I think it's a big problem with why we delay marriage these days. We have a bunch of young people in their sexual prime who are not getting married for 6, 8, 10, 12 years after they've reached sexual prime so they are dealing with very strong physical urges. And if you don't think that's a recipe for sexual immorality, just look at our culture. Um, you know, the, at camp last weekend, I told the young men that many of the high school kids that were there would already be married in not that long ago. Uh, some of them would have children and be supporting families already. And, uh, you know, the, the younger kids, the junior high kids, would be on the verge of that. So, you know, when, when kids are, you know, somebody said, what's the clue when it's time for somebody to get married? You know, puberty. <laughs> it's a good indication. Um, now, we do know in ancient times that, that puberty came later. 
Um, I think the fact that puberty is coming earlier is a result of the fall. But you had people getting married shortly after puberty because that's when they were entering into that period of their lives. And so Satan is going to use sexuality to entice young people away from God. So the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Indeed, they called the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So these hot young girls started inviting the Israelite young men to, hey, why don't you come worship Baal with us? And so they did. Um, this is a favorite tactic of Mormons. This, this, and, and I've talked to former Mormon young women who talk about the fact that they are instructed to go out and find non-Mormon men and get them to fall in love with them and convert to Mormonism in order to marry the girl. It's a real thing. So this is a tactic of Satan's that's still being used today to draw people away from the one true and living God. Come, eat with us. Come to our sacrifice. Come and bow down to our gods. Verse 3, So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. So this is the, the particular Baal. So apparently they're near a place named Peor. So it's the Baal of Peor, probably a, a city or town. And the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, Take all who are the heads of the people and execute them in broad daylight before Yahweh, so that the burning anger of Yahweh may turn away from, the, from Israel. So he's saying, take, take the leaders of the people who are, who are A, following after Baal of Peor, and who B, are not stopping the people under their authority from following after Baal of Peor. Think about that. You know, they're failing in their responsibility. What's the prayer confession? I have failed to do the things that I ought to do, and I've done the things I ought not to do. So he's saying, okay, the people who have done the things they ought not to do, kill them. The leaders who have failed to do what they ought to do, kill them. In the sight of the people, in broad daylight, for worshiping false gods and dereliction of duty, so that the burning anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. So he's telling, you know, go kill them. You know, basically it's kill or be killed. <laughs> you're, you're, either gonna, you're, either, uh, you're either with God or you're with Baal of Peor. Make a choice because everybody who's with Baal of Peor is going to die. Sound harsh? It's justice. It's God's holy justice. Everybody who fails to worship God as they ought and who does not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins will die eternally in hell. Dying, they will die. They will be in torment for eternity because they have rebelled against God. And people think it's harsh. 
it's not harsh, it's just. Because God is the creator and ruler of the universe, and to rebel against him is unthinkably evil and is deserving of all the punishment that God will mete out upon them. Verse 6, Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought near to his brothers a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So they're, they're having this meeting in front of the tabernacle. They are praying to God and weeping before God because of the sin of Israel. The word has already gone out that everybody who has joined themselves to Baal Peor is to be put to death. And in the sight of Moses and the leaders of Israel, a young man brings one of these Moabite chickies into the camp and into his tent. And Phinehas, the son of, El of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. So he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both, both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. Then the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. So those who died by the plague were 24,000. So in this time, 24,000 Israelites. Now it says the plague on the sons of Israel. Um, the plague was the command to kill them. The plague was the plague of sin. There's no mention here of a disease killing people. This is the wrath of God meted out through the mediatory power of the Israelite leaders. But this event where the son of Eleazar, Phineas, went in and killed this young man and young woman in the midst of their immorality was kind of the, the shocking catalyst to get everybody's attention and bring about repentance. But 24,000 people had been put to death. So that's what happened at Baal Peor, this, this period that, that Moses is now talking about in Deuteronomy 4. And Moses is using this as an illustration from Israel's own history that their lives, their very lives, depend on obeying God. To obey God is to live. To disobey God is to die. And so only those who had, had listened to God and had obeyed his commandments had lived. Now, some of these may have been adults at that time. I'd have to go back and see the timeline of when that took place. I'm not sure. But the idolatry that happened with, with Baal of Peor that God judged by killing 24,000 people is a warning to Israel and to us. Moses continues, he says, But you who clung to Yahweh your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as Yahweh my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. 
You shall keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So Israel's keeping of God's law and the way Israel was to live in the land was meant to be a sign to the nations around them. It was a testimony that, that this people were God's people and this way of living was God's way of living. And this way of living brought prosperity and this way of living was something to be admired and learned. So one purpose of the law was to make Israel morally and spiritually unique, that they would be different from the nations around them, and by being different, they would attract the nations around them, that, that they would be an attractive nation um, because of the way they live, because of the prosperity they enjoyed, and that the prosperity they enjoyed would be because of the way they lived. So Israel was supposed to be a witness of God to the nations. The purpose of the nation of Israel was always evangelistic in God's mind, to spread the news about God, and they failed. Um, now, I believe that they have been temporarily set aside but that God still has plans for the nations of Israel. Um, that's a hallmark of my own dispensational theology, that Israel and the church are not the same, that God had plans for and made promises to Israel that will be fulfilled because God will accomplish all his good pleasure. And, and that is uh, one of the main reasons for the millennial kingdom is the, the perfection and demonstration of this plan. And I believe it's foretold in, in many places, but, but we won't get into that. That's not what we're looking at here. So this was supposed to be a faithful nation, and under the Messiah in the millennium, it will be a faithful nation. And you can see that in Isaiah 45, in Zechariah 8. Um, it's, it's really not only in... The New Testament, it's in the Old Testament. This reign of Messiah on the earth over a kingdom of righteousness. So we'll, we'll see that in the future. So Israel's moral demands were to be an example to the nations around them. Moses continues, For what great nation is there? that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God whenever we call on them. Um, there isn't another nation that has a God that answers when they call because the other gods aren't real. So faithfulness to God is going to allow other nations to see a God that is real. Verse 8, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So the, the other nations would look at Israel's laws and compare them to their own laws 
and see the superiority of Israel's laws. It's very, very telling that, you know, right, blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. This is something that would, would be of great benefit to the other nations around them. They would look at the laws and see the fair and just laws that were superior to their own laws, whatever they may be, and they were different for different nations, of course. Verse 9, Only keep yourself and keep your soul very carefully, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Teach them to your children. Now we'll see this again just a little bit later in, in, in uh, chapter 6. The, this really strong thing. The education of children is the God-given responsibility of their parents. And parents will be judged for how they have educated and or overseen the education of their children. God does not expect every parent to be a quantum physicist or an expert in 40 different languages or anything like that. And it, it is, there's no shame or failure of parentage to turn outside of yourself to find sources of instruction for a, for a child. But it is the parent's responsibility to know what their child is being taught. And it is the parent's responsibility to teach the children the things of God. To, 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 to pass on their experiences, to pass on their knowledge of the scripture, to take your kids to church. Um, we were talking up at camp, the uh, youth groups in churches these days. They're not as strong as the youth groups when I was in high school 40 years ago. They're not as central to the church as they were 40 years ago. And that's not so much on the church. Now, I know there's all sorts of problems with youth ministry. I know there's all sorts of, you know, we can talk about philosophy of ministry at another time. I'm talking about the fact of ministry. And when I was, and I, I've talked about this, when I went to camp as a, as a junior high and high school kid, I went to the same camp that I now volunteer at. When I was going to camp, it was, you know, upwards of 80% or more church kids. Um, churches used to send their whole youth groups up to camp um, together. So, I mean, you just, you knew everybody. And, and, you know, multiple churches would fill up the camp and you'd have, you know, 15 to 20%, you know, one out of every five kids was a friend of a church kid who got brought along. So that would be the 15, 20% that weren't church kids. But the vast majority were church kids because the churches sent their youth groups. 
And I remember, I mean, it was a, it was promoted heavily in the church, the camp, going to camp, sending your kids to camp. And that was a good thing. Um, nowadays, but, but one of the reasons why the, and this is what I was getting at, one of the reasons why the youth groups were so much stronger was parents made their kids go. Most people didn't have a choice. Now, you know, hopefully, you know, the, the saved kids loved youth group and loved doing things, but you had unsaved kids whose parents just made them go because the parents were saved. And I, mean, I grew up, you know, our, our, my family grew up with Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. The, when the church was open, we were there. And, you know, except for rare occasions when we were out of town or, or something was going on. And we did not have, and Chris, when I was a kid, no school or sports organization scheduled anything on Sundays or Wednesdays because those were church nights and those were family nights. And so you didn't have, you know, school basketball games on Wednesday nights. You didn't have school plays on Wednesday nights. You know, so there was, I mean, you would have practices after school, but they were done before dinner. And uh, we always had a, a meal at church on Wednesday nights. So you would go to the church and have dinner, and then you would have Bible studies. So and, and Wednesdays was always um, not so much a, a worship service as it was smaller Bible studies. So we saw that. You know, that was the, the experience of my youth. That's gone. Parents aren't sending their kids to that. There's so much more stuff that we're allowing to distract us from the regular gathering of the church and the regular instruction of the word. Um, but I mean, you, you know, we had, I mean, when I was a, little kid. I was in Royal Ambassadors, which was a Southern Baptist. I don't even know if they still do that. Um, but Royal Royal Ambassadors was a, uh, that was what, where I was on Wednesday nights. And, and it was a youth oriented, um, kind of a, my grandfather was an RA leader too. Um, not at our church cause we lived in different towns, but the RAs was kind of a cross between church youth group and boy scouts that you know there were camping skills and camp outs and hikes and and we did all sorts of stuff like that in addition to bible studies and and so that was a you know back then back when uh, doctrine was much more important it seemed in the life of some churches so this this instruction to teach your children is really important. And it's something that many parents are failing at through either ignorance or a lack of commission. Not all parents. I'm not jumping on everybody. There are parents who, who are very diligent about instructing their children. And there are churches that still make this a priority. 
But in many ways, churches have stepped back from that. Um, a lot of it is the fact that we don't have the young families in our churches like we used to. Um, because, and, and I'm firmly convinced that, you know, everybody talks about all the youth that are leaving the churches. And so they do all these things to make church relevant to, to youth. And by doing that, they make church irrelevant because the things that they're trying to do to make it relevant are not the things they ought to do. <laughs> they're not listening to this. They're not teaching the, the things of God. They're not, that's, that's what the children need to hear. They need to have the things that we have seen and known about God made known. It says, teach, make them known to your sons and to your grandsons, is what Moses says. Very important. Then in verse 10, Moses now begins to focus on the first and second commandments. Listen to this. Remember the day you stood before Yahweh, your God, at Horeb, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. When Yahweh said to me, assemble the people to me that I may cause them to hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on earth and that they may teach their children. So again, teaching the children. Fear God and teach your children to fear God. Um, fearing God, it's, it's an expression that means take God seriously. Take God seriously and take the things of God seriously. Remember the day that you stood at Horeb and God had told Moses to gather the people so that they might hear the word of God. Remember, they heard the Ten Commandments in the voice of God before Moses went up on the mountain. And it terrified them. And they said, you know, Moses, you go listen to God and come back and tell us what he said, because we don't want to go through that again. And you can read that back in Exodus 20. So Moses continues in verse 11. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and dense gloom. Then Yahweh spoke to you from the midst of the fire, you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he's describing here what they saw and experienced at Mount Sinai. Now remember, the people that Moses is talking to now were not yet born or were small children at that time. Because this is before the wandering in the wilderness when that whole adult generation had to die off. So he's reminding them of things that their parents saw that they might not necessarily remember, but he's addressing them as you because they are still the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel experienced this. Therefore, they experienced this in that sense. Same way we talk about what we did in the Revolutionary War. <laughs> There's nobody left alive who fought in America's revolution against Great Britain. But as Americans, we can talk about what we did at, during the Revolutionary War or what we did during World War I or World War II because we are Americans and we are part of that collective history. Um, we're not claiming personal credit for having done it, but our nation did it. And so we did it. 
And, and, and that's a, that's kind of the, the remember when you were there, most of these people weren't there <laughs> and the ones who were there were children. So, but he's reminding them of what Israel had gone through when God revealed to them at Sinai. Verse 13, so he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to do, that is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So all of the details that God, that God gave to Moses up on the mountain were, you know, like, you know, how the sacrifices were to be carried out, how all of that, they are expressions of the Ten Commandments. You know, that you shall have no other God before me. Okay, here's how I am to be worshipped. Do not make for yourself a graven image. Okay, here's how I am not to be worshipped. All very important. So, the, 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 the Ten Commandments summarize and express all the commandments that God gave to Israel through Moses. Verse 14, And Yahweh commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So again, God has instructed Moses. He's repeating the fact that God told me to teach you this stuff. <laughs> so listen up. <laughs> this is what God has told me to teach you. And that's, that's a key thing. And so because he's been told to teach them, he says, keep your souls carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, he says, you didn't see any form. God is trans transcendent. God is a spirit. The second commandment rules out the creation of any physical representation of God for the purpose of worship. The second commandment talks about how to worship God rightly. It's not just repeating the first commandment, which says, don't worship false gods, don't have any other gods but God. It's saying, don't make an image of God and say, this is Yahweh. That's what they did at the bottom of Mount Sinai while Moses was up getting the tank, getting the law. They had Aaron make a golden calf, and they stood up and they pointed to the golden calf, the idol that Aaron had made, and said, "This is Yahweh your God, who led you out of the land of Egypt." They weren't worshiping a false god; they were worshiping the true God falsely. That's key. It says you saw no form. You don't get to make idols. To worship God. Verse 16, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth, and lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which Yahweh your God has apportioned for all the peoples under the whole heaven. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own inheritance as today. Don't make any idols. And he's saying, don't make any idols of God. 
um, this was a key thing, not to worship God wrongly. The, the making of idolatry, any human representation of God is going to be a distortion of God and will be a false God. This is one of the big problems with shows like The Chosen. They are putting words in the mouth of God the Son that he did not say. They are depicting actions on the part of God the Son that he did not do. And they are going beyond what God has revealed to us about the Son. They're also creating an image in the mind of an actor where we have no description of Jesus physically in the Bible. We don't know if he was tall or short. We don't know the color of his hair. We don't know the color of his eyes. Now we can speculate because he was a first century Jew in Palestine. That gives us some clues, but we don't know. You know, We know he had a beard because they pulled it out. We know, you know, there's things like that that we know, but we don't know, you know, how tall was he? What was his physique? Was he a stocky, muscular guy? Was he a, a skinnier guy? You know, we don't know. Um, and, and so when, you know, what was his facial shape? We don't know. So when we get these images of the Lord presented to us, whether it's in Mel Gibson's The Passion or whether it's in The Chosen or, or any of these presentations, um, the old Jesus movie, any of it, um, these are not helpful because they distract us and they supplant the images that we should have in our mind from reading the scriptures. And just as an example, when you think of Jesus in your mind, I'm betting most of you immediately have an image from a painting or a movie or a TV show about Jesus that you've watched. I do. It comes to mind. That's not Jesus. That's a painting or an actor. It's not God. So, you know, I, this is something that, that we need to guard against because God is not to be worshipped through images. Um, and I've, I've struggled with this because there's part of me, I'm a historian and I love art, and there are some beautiful paintings, there, you know, illustrations of Jesus cleansing, the, clearing the temple, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that... And you wonder, okay, you know, picture of Jesus teaching on the mountainside. We know he did it. You know, so you got Jesus sitting on a rock. You got people sitting around him. You got a little little child next to him. You know, don't hinder the little children from coming unto me, et cetera, et cetera. These are, these are beautiful images, but they're not God. And they're incorrect because, because the person who painted the picture really doesn't know what Jesus looked like. It's his imagining of what Jesus looked like. So, you know, this was not something that we should, I really feel strongly about this. I'm, I'm trying to, 
trying to, to put forth, don't make images of God in any of the personages of God. Um, I honestly don't even like the, the, the dove images for the Holy Spirit. It's don't make an image of God. You can talk about God. You can talk about Jesus. You can talk about the Holy Spirit. You don't make images of them. So that's, that's just a prohibition that this isn't like the Sabbath. <laughs> this isn't something that was just for Israel in ancient times because those same prophets I talked about earlier who did not condemn the nations around Israel for their failure to keep the Sabbath did condemn them for their idolatry. Important key. So, and he says that, that he talks about Egypt as an iron furnace. It was in Egypt that God began to form the nation of Israel. You know, we, we think about, you know, he began to form the nation of Israel with the calling of Abraham. But in Egypt was when he took the family of Jacob, Israel, Abraham's grandson, and turned that family into a nation, grew them to, you know, to, it was a couple of million people that left in the Exodus. Um, and it, it was, they were, they were refined in the fire. They were melted in the fire. The, 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 the iron furnace was where iron ore was broken down to get at the metal. The metal would be melted. The, the, the rock it took a very hot furnace. It wasn't easy. They couldn't make large quantities of iron. Um, the, the, the quantities of iron available at this time of Moses 14, you know, 1400 AD or BC, um, these, the quantities of iron were very, very small. This is still considered bronze age. Most of the metal implements were, would have been bronze. Iron was just starting to be known and it was nowhere near supplanting bronze as the metal of choice. It would be two to three hundred years before iron implements would have supplanted bronze implements as the primary metal tool, whether it's plowshares or swords and weapons. So, but iron was known and they knew that iron took a lot hotter fire than bronze did because, you know, they understood that and we understand that today. So this was you know, a, a, a fire that was sufficient to heat the metal to the point where it could be worked with hammer and tong and anvil to create something useful. The, the trials that Israel went through in, Israel, in Egypt was... A, it's a metaphor of the, the great suffering that they endured, but it's also, you know, that suffering was 
because God was making them something to be used. And I, this is an analogy that um, I don't remember where I first saw it, but this is something that, you know, when we undergo suffering in our lives, we're either in the furnace or on the anvil being hit by the hammer. We who know God are being refined and shaped by the trials we undergo so that we can be of better use to God. Because that's how you make a tool out of a lump of iron ore. You stick it in a fire and then you hit it with a hammer. And so, like I said, we're either in the fire or being hit by the hammer because we are being shaped by God for a purpose because we've been saved by grace through faith, but we've been saved for the good works that he has prepared for us. Not only has he prepared the work for us to do, he is preparing us for that work just as he was doing for Israel so long ago back in Egypt. And we got through verse 20. There we go. All right, let us now get into the Apostles' Creed, recite our faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the collect for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for this Tuesday the seventh day of February. I wish you the best of Tuesdays. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. See you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster. 